has set up is a kind of a theme, uh, the idea of language, and that language is always a blend of other languages and cultures as it comes together. This week, I'd like to um, start with a theme <coughs> of what I think some disciplines call totem magic. You all know what I mean by totem magic? Totem magic? <laughs> Not total magic, which would be... Total magic would be uh, the Wizard of Oz. But... Well, yeah. But totem to anthropologists just means anything that's, that's any kind of an object or something that's imbued with some sort of special powers, right? So that's why it's totem pole. There's totem animals, right? So you <coughs> some people believe you're connected to uh, certain animals, uh, tribal animals, etc. But also totem magic, the way it works in... in um, in our lives, it's, uh, you've probably had the experience, and if you haven't, I suggest trying it, of standing in front of a painting and just getting that picture of the artist painting it. And as you're standing there, you can kind of almost, you're in that same bodily pr position that the artist was, and somehow you feel at one with that artist maybe hundreds of years before. And if it's da Vinci or, or someone really, really famous, you feel this magical connection. True? I mean, all of us feel magical connections to things. <coughs> On a smaller scale, I have a sweater that I kept for my father. He passed away a long time ago. And <coughs> there's some total magic to that sweater. When I pull it out, I connect with him. Now, we know there is no real connection. <laughs> I doubt there's a single cell of my father on there, but it connects me to him. And also, total magic is in rings. You know, that's the reason we wear the rings. Uh, we see them as symbols of things, and symbols are, are a type of total magic. Am I making sense? We do this all the time. Um, my students talk about going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I told them I, I play rock music. I love rock music, but I'm not going to go to the Hall of Fame because it's just frustrating to me. I would not want to look at Jimi Hendrix's guitar. I'd want to play it <laughs> to see it through a glass case. What's the point? <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> I would like to wear Bob Dylan's jacket. I don't want to look at it. So that's soda magic in its fullest, right? That I feel like if I picked up Jimi Hendrix's guitar, somehow I would connect to Jimi Hendrix. And I think I've been looking at this for a couple of days now because this was one I really had to do a whole lot of from zero preparation for. Um, <coughs> As I've looked through this, I, I've decided that that's probably a more important image of how we got the canon than all the other things that people argue. It's kind of like origin liked it. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's almost like um, if someone who was really famous, who was close to a, dis a disciple, said that it was good, it carried some, some weight, some panache. Am I making any sense? What's confusing is some of the ones that some of the ancient church fathers really respected did not make it. You're like, hmm, they thought it was scripture. <laughs> Why not? So it was really kind of a, a process of creating lists and who thought were the best scriptures, and, and, but a whole lot of total magic going on that I think if someone really famous said something, then it had more weight than just whether or not single churches used it. But if you lived at the time of the early church, and I'm gonna focus mainly on about up to 150 AD, a little bit beyond, maybe 170, but the very, very early church, if you lived in the er early church, there would have been all kinds of documents circul circulating through the church. But surprisingly enough from this research, people didn't see that as all that important. What they saw was important were that there were still people who had seen someone who had seen someone who had seen Jesus. <laughs> and that was much more important to them. So they focused much more on oral culture, and that leads to a problem for us. That means when they do quote, quote scripture or quote Jesus, they're quoting oral traditions that may not be in any of the gospels that we have. So there are some quotations from Jesus that don't seem to be in any of the four Gospels. There are some that seem to reflect the four Gospels, but they're not exactly the same because people are paraphrasing or putting it in their own language. 
And the only thing we know for sure that are circulating, we have much more evidence that the letters of Paul are circulating through the church, even more than the Gospels. So certain churches only had maybe one Gospel, if they had any. They might have Matthew, or they might have Mark. And there's also some mysteries to this whole thing. Some of the early church fathers studied under John and Peter, and yet don't mention the Gospel of John or the letters of Peter. Great mystery. Why would they not speak of them? Now, they speak sometimes with, you know, in, in language that reflects John or Peter, but not necessarily. No mention of the letters themselves. Now, part of that is because of what I just said. They valued oral tradition. Written text didn't mean that much to them. You've got to think this isn't that far from the time of Plato, where Plato said, we'll lose our minds if we, it, written text cause us to lose our memories. He was terrified. Same things they're saying about computers. Yes? Were they right? Yes. <laughs> Someone in Aristotle's time could memorize an entire lecture. First hearing. Can we do that now? My students can't remember a, a single PowerPoint page. If I just take it off, what did that PowerPoint just say? I'm not going to do that to you all. <laughs> and you all can pull the age. Though. Well, I'm just a little older. I, you know, I'm more of a big picture kind of guy. Something like that. But I did want you to look at, this is something called the Didache. And this comes from very early period. At least, it's, it's almost as old as something like the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written just before the turn of the century. This is written probably just after. So this is the Didache. And this was on a lot of people's list of the canon. There it is. Uh, there are two ways, one of life, one of death. And there's a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, first, you shall love God who made you. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another what you would not want done to you. The old negative golden rule, which I think is very confusing. Like when a teacher says, this essay is not without merit. <laughs> I'm like, does it have merit or not? <laughs> All right, the meaning of these things is this. Bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you for what reward is there for loving those who love you. Do not the heathens do the same? And you recognize these are passages from the Sermon on the Mount, but not put in any kind of context or whatever, which leads a lot of early scholars to think that Matthew and Mark, etc., had lists like, had things like this that they codified and put into the order that they put in. So these were running around the church pretty widely, and they did okay. Um, as you can see, it's scriptural, it's orthodox, and there's a certain beauty to them. One of my final points is going to be I think people ought to be more aware of these. We, are, we have availability that they didn't have. Any single church at that time probably would have only had four or five different texts. They might have one letter of Paul. You see what I'm saying? They didn't have a variety. They didn't have text to compare. You know, okay, here's three versions of Mark. Which one's the better? No, they didn't have any of that kind of thing. They might have one version. And this is what led to arguments for centuries as to what was in the canon. Um, but now, you can go right online, bingo. <laughs> or you can save 20% at Barnes & Noble. I'll pass this around, you can take a look. And you can buy books, collected books of the, of the different scriptures that were lost. A lot of us think, well, if they were lost, they must not have been any good. Well, some of this is good. And some of this apparently became the basis of the Gospels as we have them. All right. The Gospels that we do have, we cannot really date them accurately because people didn't keep records like that. And the real authors are not known, and we'll see today how they got to be attributed as they were. All right, so we do have some best guesses that I've been over in previous talks. Mark between 60 and 70. One of the main reasons we think Mark was written at that time is because... Um, there's no kind of relationship between Mark and the letters of Paul, so he has um, so Paul couldn't have had Mark. Matthew is second, between 70 and 80. Luke, third, between 80 and 90. And John, last, between 90 and 100. Even then, as we'll see today, 
they probably weren't in the form that we now have them. Things were added and moved around. As you know, it's, it's well known the ending of Mark was added on later. Everybody, you know, all scholars agree on that. All right, suppose that the Gospels did not exist before 58 simply because Paul doesn't quote from them. No, none of the other epistle writers quote from them. And Mark is presumed earlier and later because Mark is simpler and Matthew and Luke draw from Mark. So it's just simple logic that we figured out that kind of a plan. Now, overview of this, even though that's the case, and again, this is, this is how people that write books like the Da Vinci Code get their stuff, is there are these mysteries, and this is, this is part of it. The earliest Christian writings outside the canon we have, for the most part, do not directly reference the current Gospels, and they don't mention John at all. So, they do reference Paul, but very vaguely and often without saying that Paul said it. So it makes you wonder, was Paul even quoting some oral traditions that he was around at the time? The reference we do have from the words of Jesus may come from common oral traditions. So, like you saw before, the negative golden rule rather than the positive golden rule was traveling about. The Christian faith was mostly based in varying oral traditions. And the early Christian fathers, the early Christian teachers, regarded the Old Testament as scripture, but nothing that was written that we would call the New Testament was considered scripture. They called it wise counsel. All right, so I want to focus on the apostolic fathers especially. <coughs> and they're called the apostolic fathers for a simple reason that they knew the apostles. They had to have lived within two generations of the apostles because, of course, we all live supposedly three generations or so. Yes? If you have your allotment. <laughs> your three score, yeah. <laughs> or four score if you're lucky. Whatever a score is. But anyway, the tradition indicates that they were taught by the disciples, but the uh, apostolic fathers weren't taught by all the disciples. It was really just John and Peter. Uh, Clement of Rome is considered Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, and this is like a list of places, hot spots on the Mediterranean. It's interesting, though, that Antioch, as I told you before, is the head of the church. It's gone from Jerusalem. Antioch is, is in what we would call Syria, uh, like Syria area. Was what the, the church moved about the time of the fall of Jerusalem, which makes sense. Yeah. It was already moving there, but um, also among the apostolic fathers, the Didache, which I showed you a sample of, and the Shepherd of Hermas, which is in that book, if you want to look at it. It's called the Book of Hermas or the Shepherd of Hermas. And those are unknown authors. So up until really even the first canons included these documents, included another one called the Epistle of Barnabas. All right, so Clement of Rome, of course, this is not a photograph. <laughs> this is some made-up portrait done later by a Byzantine artist, but it gives you something to look at. We have no idea what he really looked like, probably. He was the first bishop, he was a bishop of Rome. There's a big debate as to whether he was the first pope. I don't want to get into that kind of stuff today. All right, so his writing is the first Christian writing that's considered authentic and um, orthodox. So it often got included as part of the, Bi the early Bible as well. It's an epistle that he wrote, 95 A.D., which is really about the same time as the Gospel of John. It's contained in many Bibles and read and regarded as Scripture in many churches. And when you read it, it very much sounds like a letter of Paul. I wish we could look at samples of all of them, but I don't have time for all that today. Clement refers to any Gospel, but frequently refers to the epistles of Paul. He calls them wise counsel, not Scripture, reserves this authority for the Old Testament, which he cites over a hundred times. You see this over and over, that the early Christians proved um, their beliefs in Jesus from the Old Testament. They didn't ever quote the New Testament. 
On a few occasions, he quotes Jesus without referring to any written source, but his quotations don't correspond to anything noted in a written text, but they resemble some of the things. So it's obvious that there's an oral tradition of what Jesus said that's traveling around various versions. Suggests the Gospels were not known to Clement, yet he was a prominent leader of the Church of Rome. Prominent leaders, you know, an understatement since they considered him later the first pope. And he was ordained by Peter. Already, though, aren't we sort of seeing some total magic here? Ordained by Peter gives you a certain cachet. <laughs> and, of course, the church makes much of that by saying that he was the first pope, even though that's really anachronistic. He was a bishop of Rome. They didn't have any idea there was going to be a single church leader. And, crazy enough, he didn't even have the scriptures. All right, letters of Ignatius we know were react, redacted in later centuries, so they've been tampered with a bit, so it's kind of hard to say. But uh, he wrote the original letter about 110 A.D. when he was on trial for his Christian beliefs. And, of course, he doesn't have any kind of um, scrolls or anything with him, so he's borrowing phrases and paraphrases from Pauline epistles and never tells us what he's doing. And he borrows ideas found from Matthew and John, and on one occasion, something from Luke. Now, it makes sense that he would be borrowing things from John because he was a student of the Apostle John. Okay, but at this point, he's borrowing, seems to be borrowing from the ideas of John more than maybe the Gospel of John. <coughs> In no case does he name or precisely quote any New Testament book. So darn it, they'd probably all fail my freshman writing class about citation of sources. But it wasn't the custom of the time or the tradition of the time. It's just frustrating for us. He wrote to the Philadelphians. I double-checked that to make sure. I know that it was a Philadelphia, but I think, you know. I thought, did they mean the Philippians? Because another one did write the Philippians. Ignatius recounts a debate, and he shows that only the Old Testament was regarded as an authority. But of course, they're arguing with Jewish believers, Jewish converts, so there's a reason for that. He doesn't refer to New Testament writings as evidence, but he says Jesus is the witness to the authority of the, of the Jewish tradition. So, by this time, by his time, we know the new t none of the New Testament was regarded as an authority. Ignatius and other Christians probably saw them as wise counsel or useful collections. All right, this is actually a real light version of, of the Didache, parts of the Didache that we have. It's a Christian manual believed to follow about 110 um, it's a detailed account of church hierarchy and rituals, the way of life and the way of death. So this is invaluable to scholars learning how the early church thought. But of course, another thing that we don't want to do is generalize across the church. Yes, you can't say how the early church did this or that because it was scattered all over the Mediterranean and different practices in different locations. Well, he was on trial for his faith, so he was writing to the, the Roman leaders. He's not dry, writing directly to the emperor. We get one a little bit later that's writing directly to the emperor. But he's writing to the people that put him on trial, the Roman so officials. Would it have made sense that there would have been more credibility for him to have referred to the other testaments than... Well, not just that, but there was no New Testament. There was nothing codified. There was nothing agreed upon. So, right. But to quote from them would have seemed silly. It, there wasn't that much total magic to what Paul wrote that they would go, oh, Paul, you know, that's going to take a while before the church goes, elevates Paul to this position. Am I making any sense? At this point, he's just another Christian writer sending out letters. Yeah, for, his, for being a Christian at this point. Um, 
Christian persecution was not widespread, but a lot of these early church leaders were persecuted. Paul himself was. Yeah. In the end, imprisoned in Rome and, <coughs> and killed. Executed or died in prison or whatever, whatever we know about it. And how we know about some of this is from these writings. They talk about the death of Paul and the death of Peter. A lot of times when you'll hear, well, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome, blah, 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 it comes from these writings, from these original people who recorded these things. Because that's another thing. You wonder, well, where do we get all these, quote, traditions? Well, they have to say it's traditions because it didn't make scripture, so these are, you get the idea. Oh, on the other hand, if a great Christian teacher wrote a letter, they'd circulate them. They'd make copies of them, send them around to the churches. And this is where the church seemed to function. It didn't have scriptures, but they would read these letters. It reminds me a lot of the, of the Mennonite and the Amish practice. You, you all know about this? where they, um, it's, it's similar to the idea where you send out one letter to all your whole list to tell them what you did over Christmas or the Christmas cards. Got, and, and Bobby got his, you know, <laughs> got a trophy in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in the Mennonite culture, they, they, take, uh, the, they write one letter summing up like a, a period of a family's life, and then that goes to this next family, and it lays out on a table so everybody can read it, and then that person takes that letter and their own family's letter, and they send it to this next house so everybody catches up with each other. And it kind of reminds me of that. The early church seems to work like that, like, read this. This is good stuff. <laughs> so they're sharing a book list. All right, no references are made to show any clear connection to the epistles, but the Old Testament is quoted a few times. This is the Didache. It's noting that the book attributes its ultimate source to unnamed itinerant evangelists. So it says of itself that it got this message from different people that are traveling around. So anonymous oral tradition is still king. And it was regarded as canonical by Clement of Alexandria, Origen, another church father from a later period in the Egyptian churches. Epistle of Barnabas, the guessing from 70 to 130, so it could have been written even about the time of some of the, some of the Gospels. And Barnabas is a companion of Paul, and one of the reasons, of course, it has cachet is because he's, I'm going to use that word too much today, <coughs> cites many Old Testament books by name and uses many phrases, and it's in that book that I passed around, but never names any New Testament book. Are we getting the theme here? Indicating, again, common oral traditions. For a long time, Epistle of Barnabas was a part of the New Testament canon, and it's listed in the very first canon that Christians made, Codex Sinaiticus. And we're going to take a look at that later. Another guy, he didn't make our list of the famous church fathers, but he's on here for a different reason. He's an early writer. Again, these pictures could be completely bogus, but... <coughs> writes between, uh, uh, he, li he uh, wrote about 130 or later. All right, so he's the bishop of Hierapolis, which is now in uh, Turkey. Notice that these leaders are all over the place. It's not Rome. Nothing's concentrated in Rome at this point. And uh, it's indicated that Papias was a hearer of John. He heard John preach, and a companion of Polycarp, who's the other church father that we haven't looked at yet. This is the stuff that intrigues me. Uh, we lost what he said, but he had a, a, a book or a collection called Exposition Sayings of the Lord. Isn't that intriguing? I want to read them. But we'd only have smatterings of what he wrote from other people quoting him. And one of the reasons, though, that he didn't um, favor quoting from books, he says, I did not think information from books would help me as much as utterance of a living, surviving voice. Makes sense. All right. Papias is where we get some of the stuff that we think we know. <laughs> Papias claims the Gospel of Matthew was written originally in Hebrew. Most scholars today disagree. If something's been translated, there, there are these weird signs that translators can see that something came from another language. And we do know that passages from the different Gospels came from Aramaic from that same kind of process. You can tell by the construction of it that it was originally Aramaic. But anyway, he claimed that it was in Hebrew, which several others had translated as best they could. 
but it probably isn't the Matthew that we know. It might be just a collection of sayings under that name. And then he says, Mark was a disciple of Peter. This is where we get the idea of that connection. He says, Mark did not set in order the sayings of Jesus. And scholars agree that he seems to be defending the idea that Mark just sort of, and when you read Mark, he just kind of threw it all together. And that, um, actually though, I think it reads better than Matthew because Matthew and Luke codify everything. Whereas Mark kind of makes it look like Jesus said this, then he wandered over here, he did this, he healed this person, he cast out this devil, he went over here. It's much more action oriented. So he just sort of left it the way that it was. And this, so this seems to be the first offense um, that there's an attachment to Mark who's attached to Peter. So this is the first attachment of the names of the Gospels and recorded later by a historian we're going to look at named Eusebius. Boy, aren't you sad that name is gone? <laughs> We'd all be thrilled, yeah? Your daughter calls you up. We're having a son. We're calling him Eusebius. <laughs> all right, Papius's writings indicate perhaps no set written Gospels in his day around 130. So still at 130, at least where he is, they're not set in stone, and he only seems to have Mark, some form of Mark, some form of Matthew. He doesn't seem to have Luke or John. So they haven't gotten around yet. Boy, it's, don't you wish they'd have had the internet? It had all been instantly available. All right, it's confirmed a little bit by, and I got excited about this, but I, I've got to find out more information about this. It's a lost synoptic gospel, probably in that collection, but I don't know for sure. I have to double check across here written about 110 to 30. In this text, there are echoes from all four Gospels. You'll find that in an early date, too, there were people who put all of them together, squished them together, and they considered some of those scriptural. Also, miracles that saying Jesus found nowhere else. That's intriguing to me. It appears the author was working from textual sources, but from memory, compiling freezing in his own style. It's likely that that's all the gospel, how all the Gospels were written. It's possible that canonical Gospels did not see their final near-present form until during or shortly after the time of Papias. Possible, we don't know. All right, the last church apostolic father is Polycarp. Another good name. Bring this one back. Polycarp and Eusebius. Good names for your dogs, though, aren't they? Polycarp. <laughs> That's more than one fish. It's a fish with multiple heads. No, anyway. I don't want to make fun of Polycarp, particularly since he's one of the big three, and he has the cachet of being one of the big three. He's a second sister Christian of Smyrna. Again, that's Lebanon area. Indicates he died a martyr. Aranais reported hearing him in his youth. He, along with Tertullian, identified him as a disciple of? So of the big three, one from Peter and two from John. St. Jerome added that John ordained him bishop of Smyrna. Apparently John got around. He's, his history goes all over. Yes. I don't understand why you'd have thought that Barnabas, if he was a, a follower, a close follower of Paul, that he would have got into into the Bible. Yeah. yeah. You would think. He's a bad speller. <laughs> we don't know if Barnabas really wrote it, but that excuse goes out the window because we don't really know. You know, we know that certain letters were written by Paul. Other ones are, have been questioned from the very beginning. Some of the letters of John, they don't think John wrote. So that excuse is gone. We'll get back to that. Okay. So he cites Jesus certain things a hundred times, and they match closely. So at least we're starting to get something in sync that their altered is and seem to be starting to line up with what we call the Gospels today. Even things written in numero, but he also quotes things that are written in some of the letters as sayings of Jesus. So you may not have everything straight. The authority of oral traditions elevated above written. And he only cites one source, an unnamed evangelist. Well, thank you for citing an unnamed person. 
Also on the list, though, of the apostolic fathers, even though we don't even know who wrote it. So there goes that excuse, but, you know. One of the first written texts become universally popular. That's a collection of visions, mandates, and similitudes. It's very odd by today's standards. What makes it most odd is the whole thing is really based on a conversation with an old woman. I'm like, that's very intriguing. Who reveals some certain things to him, and he has certain visions, and he explains them. It's also in that book. Where'd the book go? Did I get it? Okay, it's moving around. All right, we have fragments to prove that it was written in the second century. It may even date from the first century. Since we have fragments from the second century, it could date from even earlier. So it could be from 95 to 154 when it was written. Both Origen and Jerome, we haven't even talked about them yet, but thought the author was, um, was the Hermas known to Paul, mentioned in Romans. It's so popular, it's included with the Epistle of Barnabas as the final book in the oldest New Testament codex that still survives, Codex Sinaiticus. In other words, they have Bibles from right at the, three, uh, the 300s, and there's four of them that survived, and they had include these two books. Those would be the first Bibles, the first New Testament. Again, frustratingly, Hermas does not <laughs> name or quote any New Testament texts, <laughs> but it contains things that resemble. In fact, I just feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over. Okay, so a little summary of the early apostolic fathers. By the 130s, we have no evidence that the Gospels, as we now have them, were in circulation. We don't have evidence, and not say they aren't, but what do we have? No evidence. That's sort of like that negative thing. It's not without merit. Some quotes seem reflective, but they could be from similar oral traditions, and Matthew and Mark are at least mentioned. The early Christians respected oral traditions. Mark, you got that. Sayings in Jesus were circulating that mirrored the current Gospels, but early writings contained other sayings. I'm intrigued by that. What are the other sayings? What we would term New Testament writings were not yet considered Scripture. And the letters of Paul were most widely referenced. Noticed none of the others were referenced. First Peter, John, all those other letters, nothing for this early period. Now, of course, there are letters that could be circulating elsewhere. Who knows? And I meant to make a map of where all these people were, but they're all over the Mediterranean. So who knows what was still traveling around in other places? Again, it's kind of a mystery, and, you know, that's how you write court books like Da Vinci Code. All right. In all the texts that we've looked at so far, Jesus Christ is related orally by unnamed evangelists and not any written text apart from the Old Testament, and that's what they put their trust in. I like this point. I think this really clarifies it. It's the gospel. It's not a gospel. Does that make sense? They see the gospel as this oral tradition, it's not embodied in, in what they would call Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Yes, they know the tradition. They know the quotes. And of course, they're going to vary. People are going to paraphrase. All right, first efforts at the canon. Are you ready for this? I love it that the church is always well ahead of the curve. The first efforts at the canon were from a heretic. And we ended up with a canon simply because heretics were starting to, to throw books out, and that caused the church to go, well, what are we going to throw in? Now, at this point, they're not even heretics, right? Their belief is probably just as strong and popular in some places. So even what we call an early Christian church, some of them, by today's standards, would be heretical churches, but they didn't know that. They thought they were Christian. Are you with me? So this guy considers himself a Christian, and I've heard some people in modern times who kind of agree with him. <laughs> well, you're a Marcionite. <laughs> All right, he's a businessman in Rome. He taught there were two gods, Yahweh, the cruel god of the Old Testament, and Abba, the kind father of the New Testament. And I've heard people today even say that, like, who is this Old Testament guy? These doesn't even seem to be the same god. Well, he just decided they weren't. So he threw out the Old Testament. <laughs> 
and he was anti-Semitic, so he threw out anything that referred to uh, Jewish practices from the New Testament. But in particular, he took about, he kept about two-thirds of Luke's gospel and only ten letters of Paul. So he put together the, the first official New Testament, even though he didn't call it that. That's anachronistic. Uh, but a collection of Christian scriptures. And, of course, it forced the mainstream church to, to face that they needed to decide. But they still didn't do that yet. <laughs> okay, so let's look at some other sources. Justin Martyr of Rome, who may or may not have looked like that. All right. This is the first letter to it. Emperor. 150 AD, trying to convince an emperor that Christianity is legit and stop killing us. Justin describes memoirs of the apostles, yet another text that we don't have. Wouldn't that be great? I'd like to see that. Whether or not it's legitimate, it would still be very interesting. Which he says are called gospels. So let's see, is he what? Is he referring to them? We don't know. He quotes Luke, Matthew, and Mark. So this is the first time. So we've moved past 150, and apparently they've gotten around. Because he quotes Luke, Matthew, and Mark, and uses Johannine theology, you know, the light of the world and that sort of thing, those kind of references. So the influence is there, whether or not the Gospel of John's floating around. So when are we finally seeing traces of the Gospels that we know now? About 150. All right, so Tatian, he's an Assyrian Christian, theologian of the second century. He's actually writing in Syria, using Syrian translations. That's another issue and problem that they would have had at the time. There would be things circulating in Greek, some things being translated into Latin, other things being translated into Syrian. So they, you know, we, there's already a translation problem. He's converted to Christianity by Justin Martyr on a visit to Rome. He returned to Syria to reform the church, banning the use of wine, meat, and marriage. We'll get to that next week. <laughs> banning marriage. Not the cleverest idea that Christians came up with. <laughs> okay. Around 160, he selected four Gospels of the four we now know as the canon. Aha! So this is the first time, about what? 160. And of course, they agreed with his theology and that of Justin Mar uh, Martyr, he, and he composed, but what he weirdly did is he composed a single gospel from the four. You flinched. Well, so did every movie maker that ever made a movie about Jesus. Yes, they compressed the four gospels into one, or they just went with one. It's called the Dia Tesseron, that which is through the four. And it became an official gospel of the Syriac church. So at that time, they didn't seem to have a concept that the gospel writer had to have lived in the time of Jesus or anything like that. Anybody could kind of put one together. All right, Irenaeus appears to have some form of all the New Testament books. All right. This is Irenaeus. I switched guys again. I don't know if he looked like that. They all look pretty dour. All right, he's in Gaul. He's in France. We haven't gone yet. Yes, we've been all over the Mediterranean. Now it's all the way up in France, in Lyon. He composes an account of the persecution of Lyon for the churches in Asia, and it's preserved by Eusebius. He quotes or paraphrases various New Testament books without naming them, frustratingly enough. In his Against All Heresies and Demonstration of the Apostolic Teaching, he quotes exactly almost every book in the New Testament numerous times, demonstrating that the Orthodox canon, though not established officially, was this time generally accepted. There we go. So what date are we on now? 177. Seems that we've got almost all of the New Testament. And in account of the Martyrs of Cilium, we find an overt mention of Christians carrying around the books, including Paul's letters. So Christians are starting to move from testimony to books, but it makes sense. This is 177. Yes, so no apostles are alive. Origen is an early Christian theologian, and he's in Alexandria, so in Egypt. He 
I like they call it the Tatian Four. Because <laughs> he was the first guy to name the, these are the four Gospels. In 244, he named them as the only trustworthy inspired Gospels. But it's interesting how they decided on four in the first place. The earliest writers decided on four. Are you ready for this? Because there are four directions. I'm like, really? That was the best reason? And then he kind of keeps following that tradition. There's four directions. It's a magical number, four. Again, kind of a total magic. So we'll go with the four witnesses. Five doesn't seem right, so it has to be four. Yeah. Interesting that Native Americans do the same thing. Right. Four directions. The circle, the wheel, circle of the sun. All right. Unfortunately, there's no sign that he's using objective historical or textual criteria like we would now. We would think, uh, let's compare the different versions of the text. Let's look at the traditions. Let's collect them from all over the empire. He didn't do that. He's like, these are the ones we have. This is the ones that were listed by him. And we get that kind of total magic. If he said they were good, good enough for me. And that's kind of the way it went. Okay, what did he list? He also approved as trustworthy what's known as Gospel Peter, which is in that book. The book of James. Gospel of the Hebrews, which of course you know is not in there. The book of Hermas, again, Shepherd of Hermas, is divinely inspired. And he included also, there they are again, the Didache and Epistle of Barnabas. So some of the total magic didn't work. You know, later on, Origen didn't have the clout to get it through. And he passes on some oral traditions. This is why it's interesting to read the writings because he records some sayings of Jesus that aren't recorded anywhere else. These guys are collected in this fun tome. I remember when I was studying how I was forced to read that and I was like, who are these people? But it's very interesting once you get in there. Polycarp's in there, Irenaeus, some of the letters I've talked about. All right, so the first Christian historian, we're like, yay, finally somebody's going to put all this together. <laughs> yes, guy named Eusebius. Let's bring this name back. All right, notice how we don't know exactly where he lived, either from 260 to two, or like something like 260 to three, whatever, to 339 or 340, something like that. I'm sure that's a bogus picture of him as well. He studied the school created by Origen at Caesarea. Yes, so even back then, it was like, who did you know? Who did you study under? And if they could get that succession, and of course, that leads to the whole idea of the Pope and the succession from Peter. Okay, so he identifies them. He puts the list in four categories. Recognized by every Orthodox writer he knows. I don't know that's very scientific. <laughs> Everybody I've read said these were good. So I'm not so sure the canon was decided on exactly the right basis, but there you go. The four Gospels were based on the belief that there could only be four Gospels for mystical and numerological reasons, like I said before, the four directions. He did put in all the epistles of Paul as legit. He didn't list Hebrews, but he says in elsewhere that he thought Hebrews was written by Paul. And he includes Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 John. These, he says, at his time, everybody he knew. <laughs> There's a little, something a little Facebook or hashtag about this. <laughs> All right, like. It got 200 likes. All right, so disputed but not heretical, he put the book of James, which did make it, as we know, the book of Jude, which made it, Second Peter, which made it, second and third John. So even at this early time, people question whether these were authentic letters. So I think sometimes when people will say today, well, this is disputed, you're thinking, well, this is just modern scholars arguing, but their arguments are based largely on that they didn't even agree at that time. Okay. This third category was partly disputed. <laughs> All right, he didn't explain what that meant. He just put partly disputed, there you go. And then heretical. The Acts of Paul, which we didn't make it. The Shepherd of Hermas. Apocalypse of Peter, which didn't make it. Epistle of Barnabas. 
Gospel of the Hebrews. Teachings of the Apostles, we, I, we don't even have that anymore. And Apocalypse of John, Revelation was questioned very early on. Sometimes I wish it wasn't there, but so many bad movies would not have been made. <laughs> and Tim LaHaye would be broke. But that's a different matter. Don't get me going on Tim LaHaye. All right, Gospel of Peter did not make it. Gospel of Thomas, I think of all the Gospels that didn't make it, it's the most fascinating. It is really interesting. Gospel of Thomas. It's interesting because it's just so weird. It has scenes from Jesus' childhood. Jesus is, it's just weird. But it gives you, a, it's not only weird though, some passages are just beautiful. It goes back and forth between this is bizarre and this is beautiful. So if you only have a chance to read one of them, read Gospel of Thomas. And Gospel of Thomas is quoted often in modern films. Believe it or not, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. <laughs> and sometimes passed off as, as you know, Christian, I think it's in the Da Vinci Code too. And the Acts of Andrew and the Acts of John. I'd still kind of be curious about this. And others. All right, so here we are. We finally made it. You're like, oh my gosh. Codex Sinaiticus, the earliest canonical collection. Eusebius, the historian, says that Constantine asked him to put together the, the, really the first Bible. And he asked him to put, to make 50 copies of it. And that's the Codex Sinaiticus. We think we have four of them. What did they have? The four Gospels, Acts, 14 Pauline epistles, including Hebrews, the seven Catholic epistles, so the ones we have now. Revelation of John, so far so good. Also, Epistle of Barnabas, Book of Hermes. Hermes. Hermes would be a different thing. All right, so I'm going to zip through the end here. By 367, we had St. Athanasius puts together the first list that's the same as ours. Aren't you excited? There it is, finally. Then they argued about it in 382. Then they argued about it in 393. <laughs> so 367 to 393, this is the first council where they actually take his list and debate it. By this time, though, what are they looking for? They're looking for, they're looking at everybody we just looked at. Did anybody say that this was written by somebody like Mark or Matthew? Or They're lo looking at some of the same things we're looking at, and especially the history of Eusebius. 397, the Council of Carthage refined the canon for the Western Church, but the East and the West didn't agree at this point. 787, they didn't agree again. <laughs> and we didn't have the canon as we now know it until... 1442, at least across the church. And even now, as you know, Catholic Bibles, Protestant Bibles differ. They split again after that. In fact, 1442, we're only like 100 years away <laughs> from when they split it back up again. <laughs> Darn it, we just finally got the same Bible. All right, so I got a lot of summary here. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scriptures inspired by God and profitable teaching for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But, as we now know, that didn't mean what when this letter was written? It didn't mean what didn't make it. it didn't mean, maybe it didn't mean anything. It didn't mean the New Testament. It meant the Old Testament. And we don't know, this is a disputed book. 2 Timothy, most people don't think 2 Timothy was written by the same person who wrote 1 Timothy, which means that Paul didn't write 2 Timothy. There's one guy who argues that Paul wrote 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy's a fake. I don't want to get into that. But whoever wrote it was not referring to the New Testament because it wasn't in the form. We know it until almost 400. The early church, the only authoritative scriptures were the Hebrew Bible, and that wasn't fully canonized yet. The early Christians favored oral testimony of a written text. I think you got that today. We have no physical evidence of the books in the New Testament or anything close to current form until after 150 AD. Which makes sense that John would not appear till very late because John would be written the most late. The first two that we see are Mark and Matthew. That makes sense with our theory that those two were the first written. Is this all coming together? 
it makes sense that Paul's letters would be widely circulated, whereas Matthew and Mark slowly appear on the scene. Luke, later. None of the apostolic fathers, remember those are the first ones that lived before 130, the apostolic first seems aware of the books we call the New Testament. The references are unidentified and not, or sometimes not consistent with the books we now have. Some of the sayings of Jesus seem to have been genuinely lost. That's the thing that intrigues me. What did he say that's legit that didn't make it into the canon? Though the apostolic fathers studied under John and Peter, none of them mentioned directly Peter's letters or John's gospels. One of those little mysteries that you could write a book on. Early Christians included Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and the Shepherd of Hermas consistently. So those would be some you might want to check out. Okay, though, when we were, you know, when the church argues about the canon in three, whatever, when, when the arguments finally say, authorship and proximity to the life of Jesus were argued as reasons, both of these were uncertain from the very beginning. We know from the earliest authors, we, they, were, they were already unknown who the authors were, and it was rumors. The canon largely came about from one scholar quoting previous scholars' lists. The other obvious reason for canonizing text was orthodoxy, which is slightly circular argument. You have to decide what is orthodox. Am I making any sense? So that does make sense, doesn't it? You find what you're looking for kind of a thing. So if I've already decided that these books are orthodox, then I'm going to throw these books out. Whereas to say one is orthodox, you've already made the decision what is orthodox. Are you with me? It's like a doctor making a diagnosis, but they've already made up their mind before they look at the symptoms. <laughs> so it's a little biased. And decisions about the canon came from church leaders scattered across the Mediterranean, which I think is hopeful. I think that's a good thing that these scholars were all over the place, not just focused in Rome or someplace early. All right, so things I want to emphasize. Early Christians had access to some documents now lost, but they don't have near the access that we do. They had things that we didn't have, which I'm envious of, but at the same time, they didn't have near what we had. So they might have seen Matthew once in their life. They might have, it might have just drifted through as a, as a letter. You know what I'm saying? Um, they didn't have copies of things like we do now in Access. So, final point, I think Christians would do well to explore these early writings for themselves. Not to go like, I'll show you and you know I'll change the canon, but just to think, it's kind of more the way I grew up, you know? Like, I didn't like it when anybody hid something from me. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're too young to understand that. I'll show you. <laughs> I'll get on real quick. Right. <laughs> I, I was very frustrated with my parents because <laughs> if they told me not to something, and I think most people are like that, but I had that in spades. And if they even gave me an idea, like, don't smoke marijuana, I'd be like, I think I will. You know, they would, they would just give me ideas. So my reaction to this is, you can't tell me what's in the canon. You know, I'm going to read some of these myself. And especially these ones that just over and over, these people thought were good. Why not look and see for yourself? I'm sure there's something in it for you at this time. Kind of sorry we missed out on them. So I included on here links to full texts of all these different ones. Not every one I mentioned, but some of the main ones. Clement's epistle to Rome, Ignatius' letter to the Philadelphians, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, the Didache, Shepherd of Hermas, uh, or Irenaeus' Against Heresies and Eusebius' Church History. Isn't this amazing that we live in this time, that people just throw these online for you? I, I think that's fantastic. I have not read Barnabas, no. Of course, being who I am and what I just said, I'm going to read Gospel of Thomas because that's the one everybody says, this guy's nuts. I read that one. <laughs> Don't read it. <laughs> Don't read it. It's the last thing you want to tell me.
that's the limit of your research, you learn things like 1 Thessalonians was his first letter, written about 50 AD. Right. And if you take the whole body of his work and the period that he wrote, which was from 50 AD to about 60-something AD, short period, a decade and a little bit more than a decade, he develops a pretty thorough theology. And it's not hard for me to assign a miraculous aspect to that writing. And by his own testimony, there's a miraculous yeah. aspect to his testimony. Unlike, at least from the one-hour lecture that you've just given us, none of these other folks are claiming a miraculous connection. Mm. You know, by in modern language, we could say Paul's hard drive was downloaded by the Lord himself in a three-day period of his blindness and when he was incapacitated. Mm -hmm. And and so, and, and Paul's writing 100 years before a lot of these people. So you can almost argue that when he writes the statement, all scripture is inspired if he wrote that. If you wrote it. That, that, that he's speaking in God's time and that folks, just stand by, it's going to take a lot of centuries here before you have what you can call a scripture, but trust me, what ends up in the scripture will be inspired word of God. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty orthodox view that most Christians walk around with today. Uh, and I don't have a question, because I've filibustered <laughs> so long here, I totally I can believe the, the miraculous aspect to it. Yeah. And I focus on, maybe because of who I am, I always focus on the other aspect. The fact that a lot, we know from Acts, and we know from other places, a lot of them didn't like Paul and thought he was a usurper. Like, we saw Jesus, you didn't. And, and there were questions in the church, among his own churches, like, why is he legit? You know, how we're supposed to believe this guy, you know, was blinded? You know, he's just telling us this. Um, so it's interesting to me to see there were conflicts and, and, but of course, what makes him pivotal to the church is that he's not an apostle. He's the first witness beyond. Am I making any sense? So he becomes, he becomes the prototype of, of all Christians who are converted. And, and if, if and First Thessalonians is the first Christian writing that survived from the day it was written into the canon eventually that we still have. Yeah. With some legitimacy assigned to a specific writer. Pretty crazy, huh? It is. It's actually probably it's got a, it's got better provenance than the Gospels. Yes, it does. Weirdly enough. You know that to, to have one guy seem to get the whole picture, uh, like Paul. Uh, you know, there's guys like that medicine that just seem to. Zeroed in on the truth. Yeah. And uh, way more than they should have. You know, they didn't build it together, they just got an inspiration. Yeah. And, uh, I got a question. What's that little thing? Is that a limbus that they put around every picture of the. Oh, they're like little halos? Yeah. Is yeah. That a, is that called a limbus? That sounds right. It sounds right. You and I are we'll the labrum goes limbus around together. the joint, the limbus goes around the head. Yeah, I'm going for that. <laughs> 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 you commented all about Mary. Mary. No, but that would be the first one on my list. That's complicated. That, that's next week, really. But the whole idea that a woman couldn't bear witness in a court, that sort of thing, which is reversed by Jesus. If he appears to three women first, that means he was implicitly saying women are going to have a great role in the church if they're witnesses. But it's also why the disciples are reluctant to believe them. It's kind of ridiculous. So... But yeah, there were books supposedly, purportedly by Mary or about Mary.
those are interesting as well. I think there's even one supposedly written by Mary Magdalene. Fascinating stuff, huh? Yeah. We know a lot of these were written by people later, inspired by that character. And that's the trouble with Paul's letters, is somebody writes a Pauline letter, and it ends up being credited or to Paul or whatever. So it's an honor, but they didn't have any idea of plagiarism or anything. Well, you can see from this, they're just quoting willy-nilly from everybody. Well, the controversy starts on the, sec- on the book, or the letter of the second Thessalonians. Right. So if you write one that there's not controversy, the very next one, there's controversy. Right. The seconds are all <laughs> almost always suspect. <laughs> if it's the second Peter, or if it's second, eh, I don't know. It's usually questionable. Well, there you go. That's all I had for today.